last evening, you heard a little bit about, it was a very brief overview of the particular discourse of the Buddha on breath awareness meditation. You recall 16 interrelated contemplations, all of which include the breathing, conscious breathing. The method we'll be using is called the condensed method of breath awareness. It's used in Thailand and elsewhere. where all 16 steps are taken care of in essentially two steps. But the same ground is covered, just not quite as progressively and systematically. Step number one is what we've been doing, giving exclusive attention to the breathing. We've been doing that for some days now. And officially, that's a a practice of shamatha, calming the mind, helping it become serene, tranquil, stable. As it starts getting stronger, sometimes we refer to it as samadhi. So although officially, of course, the practice has been what is sometimes called a concentration practice, Wisdom comes in anyway. Sure that in the course of doing what you've been doing, you couldn't help but notice change. How unpredictable the breathing is, or one sitting from the next. All ways of teaching us that life is uncertain. For all of us, always, it's uncertain. We don't know what's next. That's wisdom. So you've already begun. See that. Or if you attach to a particular sitting because it was so fulfilling and then can't wait to come back to the cushion for the next sitting and you can't even find your nostrils. That's also wisdom because you see, if you see you're suffering because you wanted something to, to be there that isn't. So little by little, the the law of constant change, that life is fluid, makes its presence known whether we know it or not. What has been emphasized in, the, in these first three or four days is bringing the breath into focus, like a camera. Camera's not in focus, it won't take such good pictures, or the eye. Sometimes just a change in your prescription of your eyeglasses and suddenly life is vivid and clear again. This, of course, is more and more inner focus. And finally, what it's about is bringing our life into focus. We call that wisdom. Seeing clearly. And learning from what we see and then living our learning, living our understanding. It's an ongoing challenge for all of us. Even for the Buddha, even for someone fully enlightened, there was the challenge of the different kinds of people he had to meet. Some were hostile, ambivalent. How to uh, live correctly in the midst of a constant change. In the second mode of practice, in this condensed method of Anapanasati, We still include the breathing. In fact, perhaps you're doing it right now as you're in touch with your breathing and also listening. I'll be speaking for a few minutes to introduce us to this next step and we'll go over it again, of course. But see if you can listen with an awareness that's grounded in the breathing. Sometimes uh, people will say, especially at the outset, 
It's like trying to do two things at the same time. Should I pay attention to the breath or, or to listening or whatever else is you're mindful of? But with practice, it's not like that at all. It's a unified field. The awareness is grounded in the breathing. The mind is calmed from breath to breath. But now, instead of a somewhat narrow focus, where everything that is other than breath is a distraction, or potentially a distraction, there's a, a somewhat different skill that we have to learn. And it's a total openness. So now we're sitting and breathing, but we loosen our grip on the breath a little bit. And there's a receptivity, a willingness to be present to whatever turns up. In this mode of practice now, there's no agenda. You could say the breath is a bit of an agenda. It is. And that you use it as a kind of anchor, stabilizing, steadying the mind so that it can see what's happening. It can hear what's happening. Conscious breathing cuts down a lot of unnecessary thinking. It nourishes the mindfulness that now needs to be used to all that was up until now a distraction, but it's now very much our practice. And that means our life, whatever turns up. So we're sitting and breathing. And we're planted right in the midst of our experience. What's being asked of us is that we simply be ourselves. Turns out that that's quite an art to just be yourself and take some learning and some practice. There's no special way you're supposed to be and the mind is not supposed to be in any particular condition. We've already gotten some of this training with the breathing by allowing the breathing to be just what it is, to let it unfold naturally, to learn how not to intervene, not to tamper, not to try to fix or hold or push, but just to let it be. The challenge is a bit different now. The ante is upped. Because for most of us, what turns up is much more highly charged. Perhaps it's fear, perhaps it's anger. Perhaps it's disappointment that we're angry. Perhaps it's disappointment that we feel sleepy. The materials we work with are what is what is what's at hand. And those materials are perfect. Those are the perfect materials to practice with. Simply because that's what our life is at that moment. So there's nothing to look for. It's more resting in the breathing and allowing life to come to you. It's your own life, the way you're experiencing life. Let it come to you. And it'll come to you in in the form of sounds and smells. Perhaps images coming through the mind, moods, thoughts, likes and dislikes, so forth. And the body, sensations in the body are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. What we talked about a bit last evening. What has always helped me is... uh, something that I came to many years ago and reflected on, and for some reason it helps me a lot, and I'll just pass it on to you. If you enjoy observing nature, and many of us do, 
perhaps watching birds or the tides come in and out, sunset, anything really. There's nothing we can do about it. We're, we watch it. It's out of our control. And there's a certain uh, beauty and joy in just seeing it as it is, letting it work on us, on our sensitivity. It does. As we get quieter, nature becomes even richer. If we can be in nature without much thinking, then the language of nature is so vivid, not in words. And the experience is totally different. Well, we're part of nature in the Buddhist teaching. The mind is not separated from it. And instead of observing birds, we're observing our own mind, mind watching, with a, an affectionate attitude. which will be challenged because some of what turns up in the mind is unwanted. Are we willing to expose ourselves in a naked way whatever turns up in this moment. That's an art that has to be learned, mainly through seeing how we're not willing to do that, how we push things away and deny and fight and interpret and try to change. But all of that's observable. And little by little, we just sit and breathe and enjoy the show. Just allow the mind-body process to, to reveal itself, to tell its own story, not necessarily in words. And as it does, to look and listen with keen interest, but without strain. Mindfulness is not for or against anything. That's its power and its beauty. Its job is just to see. Mindfulness only happens in the present moment. There are no concepts whatsoever in mind's mindfulness. It's just a clear mirror, like empty space. And it registers what's there. And the mind can become like that. Actually, the foundation of the mind is like that. And so, I think I'll say no more to, just to launch us, but to, from here on in, the practice will be alternating between the mode of giving singular attention to the breathing, which we've been doing, and then when you feel that the mind has calmed down a bit, not uh, overwhelmed by the hindrances that Michael talked about. They may be there, but they're not much of a problem or not a problem at all. Perhaps the breath is flowing freely, entering and exiting freely. Then we remain with the breath, but now we allow whatever is happening to be the practice. And as long as we're able to do that in a useful way, we keep doing it. When we see that we're unable to do it, many of you are very new, and you may find that those are very nice words he's saying, but I can't do it. That's all right. Little by little you'll learn, and it may turn out that this retreat will be spent uh, largely on the first samadhi practice, and that would not be a waste of time building a, a good foundation. 
but from time to time gaining experience with the that which makes up consciousness for us as we watch the mind empty itself of its own content if you see that you're not in focus you're getting lost in in stuff in this second mode of practice that you start psychologizing and thinking and analyzing, it's probably best to go back to the breath, fine-tune your attention like a musical instrument, and either finish up the sitting that way or uh, come back. And one final suggestion. We've already been hinting at it. It's an extraordinarily profound door, and it's what is distinctive about insight meditation, it's one of the things that's distinctive about it, and it leads to the wonderful things we hear as promises that can grow out of the practice. Begin to notice that no matter what you're attending to, whether it's a sound, whether it's thoughts chasing each each other through the mind, whether it's a condition of the body, a mood, so forth, See that its nature is to change. Nothing has a stable form, really. It's a dynamic process, fluid. Something's always becoming becoming something else. Just begin to become sensitive to that without straining. Begin to see this law of anicca, of impermanence, of change flowing on. Those of you who are at the uh, <clears throat> sitting at 8.15 this morning used an image of a spider in a web, in its, in its web, sitting right in the center of it, just waiting, and then as insects land in the web, just enveloping them for food. And what was required is both an active and a passive quality. Passive in the sense of total non-movement. Not inaction, but non-action. Sort of inaction is when you, you're overactive and then you collapse from exhaustion. This is not that. Just you're not acting. And the active part is the alertness, the necessity to, in that stillness, for there to be tremendous alertness. And these two qualities blend together. They're really just words for what becomes one energy. And as inadequate as that image is, For ourselves, we're sitting in the middle of our web, our net, uh, for the moment using the breathing, coming to rest in the breathing, and this is the second set of instructions, where we're just sitting and breathing. But it's rather different than what we were doing for the first three or four days exclusively, which was exclusive attention to the breath, as you now know. The breath remains with us, but Uh, It's part of a unified field of openness. Now, this takes a while for it to become comfortable and natural and even effortless. And so to begin with, sometimes it may feel as if you're trying to do two things, be with the breath or with something else, or it feels as if the breath is in the background helping you out or alongside of what you're observing. But with practice of this particular approach, the 
at least very often, it's a unified field. So that the conscious breathing and what you're aware of uh, are not trying to, is not two different things. And the, the conscious breathing is calming, helping you to develop serenity and tranquility. And at the same time, perhaps seeing insightfully, so that shamatha and vipassana, which are just names, somewhat uh, artificial, because eventually what we call samadhi and what we call insight um, also fuse. They come together. It's a, a clear mind seeing deeply into itself. Um, so, but in our uh, world, it's of course a little more complicated. Our net, uh, as was mentioned, is potentially infinite. We're sitting and being in a state of receptivity that has no bounds. And that's the power of this particular method. It's sometimes called a method of no method. Um, you don't just come to your IMS retreat for the first time, sit for three days, plop yourself down, and then you start doing it. So let me be, encourage you to be realistic. This is something that matures over uh, a lot. I don't want to use quantitative terms like years. It's not strictly speaking quantitative, although that's an element in it, of course. But what we're doing is approximating it, and even a, a bit of approach in this direction is helpful. Um, and so this evening I'd like to uh, sketch out in a little bit more detail, uh, reinforcing some of the things Michael said last evening, uh, in particular uh, the way in which they have relevance in this sutra on the full awareness of breathing or mindfulness with breathing, anapanasati that we've been using as the framework for practice. Um, our spider, what kinds of issues are there in our net and the stuff that comes in. If you recall, uh, our food, the food for a contemplative, is what turns up in the net. And our, when we see into it deeply, it's really the nourishment of understanding that feeds us. <clears throat> I left off a couple of evenings ago, if you recall, the theme was um, the tendency is to avoid things, to escape, to move away from things, let's get out of here. Uh, and the practice is a sustained attempt to uh, re-educate ourselves uh, with quite a, a very different attitude and approach, which is to move towards what's happening, uh, to be receptive to what's there, uh, independent of what that there is. Let me give you a sense of uh, some of how that can be valuable, uh, and it can be experienced concretely. At least I have, and I know a number of people who have. It was also mentioned that um, it can be very an important part of a stage in practice or time in practice when you uh, see that there's no escape from suffering. It's really another way of saying the same thing. Uh, not that there isn't an end to it, to all this unnecessary torment and suffering that the mind can, uh, creates, but there's no escape from suffering. Escape doesn't work. As you begin to see that, your motivation changes. And I'd like to try to make that more concrete. Think of all the energy, all of us, think of your own mind and years of, if it's true, maybe it's not true for you, that uh, you're right there with whatever comes up in your life, no matter what time of the day or night. Uh, probably not, or maybe we're all getting better at it, hopefully. But can you imagine how much energy we've used to escape, to avoid, to delay, to deny, to repress, to cope with, to put up with? We have an incredible capacity to know exactly what to do, and we don't do it. We, it's very clear. Our understanding is right there. For reasons of fear or whatever, we don't. And we can live for years that way, a whole life perhaps. 
that's tiring. There's a lot of energy that goes into all of those strategies uh, to keep from being with what is, to constantly being, be preoccupied with what should be, what used to be. Why isn't it this way? It should be this way, but it isn't. Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of my teachers in Thailand, uh, many Thai villagers are very superstitious and they come to him for amulets, little blessed things to wear around their neck for good luck, and uh, he would really have none of that. And he said, if I were to give you any amulet, it would just be something ha- hanging from your, ne- from your neck to remind you all the time, this is the way it is. Of course, that would be tremendously helpful. And by the way, that's a kind of practice from time to time. Let's say if you're fed up with uh, how long the line is or uh, that you're not going to have time to get a shower or whatever it is, just look at it and see this is the way it is, including your exasperation. It's all part of the way it is. And sometimes uh, keeping, it th- keeping it that simple and sticking to the present moment changes it in a second. So we use a lot of energy to avoid the way it is, uh, preferring the way it should be much of the time. Now, this is a kind of insight that can happen, and maybe you've already had it in bits and pieces, but even if you don't have it as an insight, if we can just do it. The picture of the tremendous amount of energy that's used in all these strategies to move away from what is, one way or another, some of them quite brilliant, intellectual explanations and so forth. Picture if all that energy were gathered together and used to pay attention. That's really what it amounts to, in my opinion. What happens is, as you stop uh, needing to do that, when you uh, are convinced that the most useful thing you could do is to face what's happening to you. See, I think we lack conviction in that. If something comes up that's troublesome, we're far more likely to run to a book. You know, uh, we have books now on, I don't know if there's any aspect of life that doesn't tell you how to do it. How to tie your shoelaces. Although with some of those running shoes, you need instructions. (laughs) And we trust that. We'd much rather get it from, if it's in print and... Uh, then it's got to be true. We don't have the conviction yet uh, that the most intelligent, wisest thing we could do is open in an intimate, direct way to our own experience. We don't trust that there's a, a kind of organic intelligence that we have. It's not thinking. It's not knowledge, which is also, of course, necessary and useful. It's something when the mind becomes innocent, And our spider, that's one of the qualities it has to develop, is a real innocence and naivete, which are good words in meditation, at least in this approach. I know in the the so-called real world, being naive or innocent is no good. You'll be taken advantage of. People will fleece you, take you for all you're worth, and all those kind of (laughs) cliches. Here, innocent means open, really seeing things as they are in a fresh way, naive. Um, And practice is looking, learning how to look at states that are, in a sense, familiar, because they've come up over and over and over again. States of fear, of loneliness, and so forth. Um, Can we look at them in a fresh way? Now, again, coming back to that, a simple but to me profound point, if at least we can make a beginning and take the energy that we use to avoid and delay the inevitable often and instead use it to look, even if, there, if that requires some, if it's a little bit problematic. We have available to us a tremendous reservoir of energy for attention that has been squandered on all of these tactics that don't work. If they work for you, okay. Do you see what I'm getting at? Um, so this is perhaps it's the hardest thing to learn in practice, I don't know Uh, maybe you can learn how to sit for two, three hours without moving maybe a monkey can be trained to do that I don't know (laughs) 
but uh, to be able to be open to our life experience as it presents itself to us um, is not something that we seem to uh, do naturally. We need, seem to need help and uh, re-education, and if you even do a little of it, um, I know that many of you in the hall have experienced the, the immense value of that. Maybe that's all we're doing for these nine or ten days, is reminding each other to keep doing that. Um, I saw a Swedish film a number of years ago. Uh, it's, I forgot, it's in the late 20s or early 30s, and it's about um, social, a socialist group and a family uh, who are very much promoting uh, socialism, women's rights, uh, women's rights to vote, uh, anti-fascist uh, sentiments, uh, and they're having a, a meeting and the police come and uh, start to club everyone and break it up. And the, the family of, that's central in the film, the father is there with his child, his son. And the son, when the police come, he runs and hides on a rafter of the building, but he can see the whole thing happening. And, and at a certain moment, uh, a policeman starts beating up his own father, and uh, the young boy closes his eyes, and the father sees this. So, you know, there's, he comes home eventually, the father does, uh, a little bit battered, and then has a chat with his son. And he, he reminds me, he said, uh, when I uh, was hit by the policeman, I saw that when you looked at what was going on, you closed your eyes. And the son, you know, acknowledged that. And then the father said, a socialist never closes their eyes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but plug in Vipassana Yogi. I mean, the inner eye, of course. Uh, that's what we're learning. We're learning how uh, to edge in closer, uh, to start to uh, move in, to start to uh, maybe tiptoe in, get our uh, big toe wet to begin with, uh, start to poke around and see if we can make friends with fear, with loneliness, with anger. Um, it's not only negative things, can we also be intimate with the joy and peace that's in our life? Uh, what's asked for is a tremendous capacity to stretch, inner stretching, because we've had so much practice not doing that. There's a, a very profound teaching uh, called the Vimalakirti Sutra. It's a, a, a Mahayana teaching, and I'm going to paraphrase it a lot. I don't have the text with me, and I, I think I'll be giving you the an important aspect of it, but if some of the details are off, I apologize to Vimalakirti. Uh, Vimalakirti was a layman at the time of the Buddha, in this sutra at any rate, uh, and he was highly enlightened, uh, so much so that the monks were terrified of him, because in Dharma combat he would always win. And at one point he was uh, sick, and he lived in a rather small little place. And the Buddha started sending monks to go visit Vimalakirti. He really needs some company and see how he's doing. He's sick. No one wanted to go because they knew he always used everything as a teaching. <laughs> okay. Finally, the Buddha wouldn't take no for an answer. And he herded these monks over there. They went over there. And, and then people found out, oh, they're going to Vimalakirti's. And, and they were meeting in Vimalakirti's living room. And it was very small, small room. And so... They started going over there, a few of the monks, some of them very uh, well-known ones. And then people found out, and other people wanted to go, and they started coming, and then people from different realms, the celestial beings and <laughs> deva realms, and uh, before you know it, you had thousands of people coming into Vimalakirti's living room. You know? Now, its measurement was tiny. And so then the question is, how do they all fit into Vimalakirti's living room? And uh, I remember a number of years ago reading a scholarly comment commentary on it by someone who was not a, a Buddhist practitioner and totally misunderstood it, uh, took it to mean an example of uh, sort of primitive Buddhism's uh, belief in, in, in uh, magic and superstition and uh, to kind of give lay people a feeling that if you're a Buddhist you'll have this power like Vimalakirti. And that's not what it was at all. Uh, it was just symbolic. Vimalakirti was 
able to open his heart. The living room where he lived, the living room was his heart. And what the message was uh, that you could open to whoever turned up. Open it more, and the more people who come, the room gets bigger. Oh, more turn up. Some of you, they're not so, they're unsavory and uh, not cleanly washed. And all the, room for them too. And so Vimla Kirti's living room just kept expanding. And of course, that's the teaching for us. Because we, have a, we live in a tiny, teeny little place. <laughs> little cell. <laughs> Very beautifully decorated. <laughs> With our certificates from the schools we graduated from, and etc. So that's a lot of what we're learning, is how to do that, how to, to open what's there, to what's there. Um, if you left off, if when we left off, do you remember uh, the, the, the sutra? There were 16 contemplations, but um, you could understand them as uh, four realms uh, of practice, of interest. One had to do with the body, another one feelings, a third the mind, mind states, and the fourth uh, the way things are, the nature of these realms. All of them include breathing, so that uh, just to refresh your memory a little bit, because we're, we're really doing this without the names of the particular contemplations. In the first one, you're contemplating the body. Uh, in the second one, you're contemplating the different feelings you have, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Everything that comes in through the sense doors, and in Buddhism, the mind is a sense, so there's six, uh, is pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. All day long, it's going on. And the pleasant stuff we tend to grasp at the unpleasant, we tend to push away. The neutral, we either don't know it's there or we uh, get bored or start fill it up with something else. Uh, and I think we left off at the 13th contemplation, which is crucial. That's uh, 13 through 16. Those four are the w- pure wisdom. That's really when uh, full vipassana begins. Uh, up until that time, remember, it's a kind of scheme, and it can be used as a, as a curriculum, in a way, to practice, if you have enough time and motivation. Uh, first off, you're developing some samadhi and concentration, which is what we've been doing. And in the process, you're becoming more intimate, more familiar with the different ways in which the body is. The same with feelings and the same with mind states. They're starting to become something that um, you're more at home with. And a retreat, of course, is a wonderful way to do that because that's our job here. We, we don't have too much else to do. Okay. The 13th um, is something like uh, breathing in. The yogi focuses on the impermanent nature of all formations. That means all the whole mind-body process. Breathing out, the yogi focuses or is sensitive to or knows the, of the impermanent nature of all formations. Uh, so 13, uh, what that is alerting us to is um, that everything that arises passes away. You've heard that a lot. Okay? Michael got into it last night. Practically speaking, in this sutra, that you then, uh, if you were doing it the classical way, you would go back to the very first contemplation, which is uh, the first and the second, let's say, is, uh, have to do with the quality of breathing. So it would be um, breathing in a long breath. Uh, the yogi knows that he or she is breathing in a long breath. Breathing, in, uh, breathing out a long breath, uh, the yogi knows it's, it's a long breath. Same with a short breath. Those are shorthand for the different qualities that the breath takes on. It's encouraging you to get to know this universe called breathing which perhaps you're seeing, is not so simple. It's quite rich. Okay. And then it goes on. It goes on to, in feelings, for example, uh, one of the important ones is rapture, which is very, uh, very fulfilling, uh, powerful feeling of rapture that grows out of a concentrated mind. 
the kinds of things we're doing, or uh, which is called piti or sukha, which is a kind of pleasure or happiness that's even more fulfilling than rapture, which has got some, you get tired of it after a while. It's got a little bit of too much energy in it, whereas uh, happiness or uh, sukha is much more peaceful. That one is, uh, you can never have too much of, but rapture you get fed up with after a while. Uh, but you get attached to it anyway. Um, and so you begin t- to get to know uh, the different feelings, including the very ordinary small feelings of just a knee feeling unpleasant, to very dramatic kinds of feelings. Uh, and then the mind states, if you recall, our, uh, to shorten it would be, let's say, greed, hatred, and delusion. Those tendencies, and they're children. They have all these subtle uh, offspring, but, but they're basically some version of uh, the mind wanting or the mind not wanting, or uh, the mind uh, perplexed, confused, a little bit dark. And when that's not true, when we're in a state of, when we we don't want anything, when we're not uh, averse to anything, and when the mind is quite clear. So we've gotten to know ourselves a lot, a lot of self-knowing. If if you've moved through these 12, 12 steps would account for this. You've gotten to know your body, feelings, and the different mind states, uh, haven't we, just in being here, even those of you who are new, uh, it's coming at you all the time. Only now you're uh, aiming your attention much more there towards things that you have to do outside, as usually is the case. But now when we get to the 13th, it's saying any of these that you've gone through, uh, look at them and notice that they arise and pass away. Uh, a long breath, or a short breath, or a fine breath, or a coarse breath, it appears and it disappears. Or, looked at another way, uh, the breath is very, very fine, and suddenly you have a, a very ugly thought, and uh, the mind becomes angry, and suddenly the breath becomes very uh, abnormally uh, choked off, or uh, rapid, or agitated. Just one thought can change the whole thing. And then the body uh, changes, some tightening up, and then it's harder to sit. And so you can see everything's changing. It's alive. Uh, the breath is conditioning the body. How the breath is affects the body. And how the body is is affecting the breathing. And you get to see that with feelings. Let's say uh, states of rapture or of great uh, peace, of sukha, happiness, or pleasure it's sometimes translated at as... Uh, when you, they're wonderful when you're in it, and everyone I know who's tasted it, even a bit, gets attached to it. It's, there's no way around that. If it becomes a serious attachment, I think to begin with it's fine, because uh, it's inspiring. People then finally start to think, well, maybe there really is something in this Vispasana stuff. <laughs> maybe there really is something to it. And so you have much more energy to practice. The problem is then you can't get the person out of there. They don't want to investigate. They don't want to look at their stuff. Why should they? It's so nice. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Ah, good feeling. Okay. So often uh, the classical approach that teachers uh, of uh, our, our practice would take would be uh, to encourage, once a person arouses that state, you can't see its impermanent nature if you don't have it. So once you arouse, let's say, rapture or peace, then to look at it, does it last? It doesn't. Uh, Because it's a conditioned state, so it falls away. Uh, And then what happens? Uh, You get all uh, upset because you want it. And you start uh, suffering and you start uh, grasping after it and trying to find ways to get it back. uh, then you have to write a note on, to the teacher because you're so upset. <laughs> and then we answer the same old stuff. <laughs> so you're seeing the impermanence of that. And any of the mind states, whatever it is, it doesn't last. You begin to see that these moments of, uh, of craving, they arise, crave, 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 gone. Uh, the moments of uh, wanting don't last forever. They become something else. And aversion doesn't last forever. And we're not always, the mind is 
ambivalent and dark and confused and hesitant, and then suddenly it's decisive and clear and uh, luminous, you know, relatively speaking, and then the luminosity falls away, and once again we're grasping, and we hate being here, and then we love being here, we're going to go to Burma and be a monk, we just want to pack our bags and leave. You know, the, just change, change. How much have you already been through in just a few days? Think about it. You've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> you know, the scenery has been back. Okay, okay, so you see what I'm getting at. So, the 13th contemplation, in the 13th contemplation, uh, what you're doing is you're beginning to see whatever, whatever's there in the mind-body process. That's why we can simplify it into two steps, which is what we're doing. It's not fast food dharma. Don't, you know, it's not, it really isn't. There's no way to cheat the truth. You can't bargain with it, you can't buy it. It's not possible. Uh, it all comes out in the wash. In other words, you can't be where you aren't. So, or what is the other one? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Uh, so, what, uh, let's say the way we're practicing, is we put some emphasis on just being with the breathing so that we can calm and concentrate the mind. And that's a lot of the work of the first four meditations, the first four contemplations. It's not all it's for, and we'll come to that soon. Sorry, I lost my thread. Can anyone help me? Just the last thing I said. A little before that. What? What? Don't make me laugh. The whole, the whole thing will fall apart. Okay, the first four contemplations uh, are to calm and concentrate ourselves. Thank you. Okay, and we've been doing that, and then. If you hear the, the, the instructions, let's say the spider is sitting there and open to whatever turns up, whether we call it choiceless awareness or free attention. Now, <clears throat> what is going to turn up is some aspect of the body, feelings, and mind states. That's what's there. So uh, the th- same things come up. They don't come up quite as in such an orderly, systematic, progressive way when you take it on as, a, as that kind of a practice where you systematically... Uh, specifically contemplate something and move through it, but it all turns up anyway. So you're sitting and breathing and different aspects of the mind and of the body are prominent from moment to moment and you get to practice with them and the 13th is beginning to say, see how what you're seeing is impermanent, that it's changing. And so all of, uh, let's say, step 1 through 12 or whatever it is that you want to tell me about from, from the point of view of wisdom, uh, what's of interest is not so much the content as that it changes, that it has a changing nature. It doesn't have an abiding form. Now, we're not interested in that. We're not interested that everything changes. That's not exciting to us at all. What we are interested in is the content. We're interested in the storyline. And then someone's saying, yes, that's fascinating. But can you see that it's impermanent? Uh, we don't understand what that is. That is, uh, for example, to say that everything is impermanent is not exactly um, news. Uh, it's, you know, Everyone knows it. I mean, for example, if in Monday morning when you read the New York Times, if you saw a headline, Rosenberg says everything is impermanent. <laughs> I think they go out of business. No one cares. It seems anemic, abstract, having nothing to do with life. But if Clinton taken before, then, you know, give me a copy of that. Okay, so... Uh, to begin with, we're not all that interested in the process of impermanence because it, to some degree, short-circuits the content. And we're still pretty fixated on the content. As you start becoming more familiar with your own story, over and over and over again, like in retreats here, as you start seeing the coming and the going, uh, uh, develop a much more intimate relationship with your own mind, really, with yourself. 
um, it loses some of that potency. How many times can you hear the same <laughs> lament? <laughs> you know, what you're going to tell your uh, co-worker on Monday and, you know, uh, rehearsing it 5,000 times, tell it to him already, but on but wait till Monday, you know. Okay, or reliving a certain thing and then he said and she said and no one talks to me that way. And, uh, <laughs> At a certain point, it's just not as interesting as the fact that it arises and passes away. <laughs> to a few of us, anyway. A few, you know, event, so that there's a switch that, that's, that's made. In, in a, and often what I have found, by the way, just practically speaking, um, thank God for psychotherapy. Or I don't know if Michael feels like this, but I don't think I would be, I would be alive to be able to teach here. Because um, we give this teaching and often... You know, it has nothing to do with intelligence. And people hear the teaching of impermanence, but there's so much charge and power to certain issues that are being worked out that are in many ways better worked out in psychotherapy that finally the person can hear this message of that everything that arises and change, that everything that arises passes away because they've uh, taken some of the potency out of it in their therapy sessions. And I've seen that over the years it, where the two can really help each other, the two forms complement each other. Um, so in this aspect of practice, whatever turns up is seen uh, or you can put it another way, because many of us are scientifically minded. The Buddha is saying that everything that arises passes away. Find out if it's true. It's a hypothesis. And you might say, yeah, but it's a true one. We all know that already. We don't have to waste time on it. But do you remember living wisdom? That level of understanding or even faith is not so helpful. It's okay. But we need something much... Uh, something that can be thoroughly convincing, and that means it has to be experiential, it has to be more intimate. And so we have to see this law of impermanence uh, in a way that is much more interior. You see, um, many people before the Buddha, everyone recognized impermanence. Uh, every philosophy, all the Historians, everyone's seen the, uh, the fact that civilizations come and go, that uh, how vain we human beings are, can't we see that nothing lasts, and all, all the great empires are gone, they're dust. And that's that's uh, not news. It's, you know, it's not. Uh, so what did the Buddha add? In my own opinion, what he added was absolutely brilliant because he's saying what everyone else is saying, but he's saying that not only uh, are all these, uh, let's say if you look at it from historical uh, civilizations, they've all come and gone, or if you look at your own neighborhood, it's come and gone, or just uh, the world has changed so much. Uh, it's changing all the time. The external, you know, you leave your neighborhood in Cambridge anyway, uh, if you leave for a couple of months, you come back and there's some new mall or some new sh this or some new that. Things are constantly changing and you can see it and you can learn from that. People die, we learn from that. We look in the mirror, we see another gray hair, we learn from that. That's getting a little closer, if you're willing to learn from it. Okay. So a lot of the, the impermanences, of course, everyone knows about that. Uh, but what the Buddha did, well, one step before that, modern science knows it big time. It's, uh, it's the turn of the century or even earlier, some of you know better than I do that uh, all the, you know, some incredible experimental situations have been developed to really see how rapidly everything is changing. Nothing's solid. But the difference is this. The scientist doesn't apply it to himself or herself. What the Buddha is doing is saying, yes, everything is changing. Uh, and even if you say, including me, uh, we all must get sick, old, we all must get old, sick, and die, and then we reflect on it a little bit, that can help. But this is different. This is a sustained examination of the actual working of your life, right here, from breath to breath. This breath changing. 
this mood coming and going, this bodily condition coming and going, that sound coming and going. It's an empirical verification right here, right now, without concepts. When you don't have concepts, then it's intimate. We're not cooking it, up, cooking it in thoughts, it's raw. I hope I'm getting through that. So what's really revolutionary here is if the scientist would start to see that the scientist also is impermanent and start looking at his or her own mind and own body process, then uh, that would be the same thing. So what the Buddha did was he turned it around and uh, gave us methods and techniques and forms and all kinds of help to sustain a very difficult journey because every culture, or most of the ones I know, agree that know thyself, that's the highest value. Every university all over the world, they always have one building at least that says know thyself, the inner, you know. But you don't see long lines of people queuing up to do it. Know thyself, but you do it. Okay, that's what this is. It's a know thyself factory as you've come here to. And it's all organized to uh, cut, cut down on escapes. You, you know, we're all ingenious cooking up new ones. But you have to admit, we've taken away a lot of toys. Okay. And uh, some of that is to help us all uh, learn this truth of change uh, firsthand in an intimate way, uh, digging it out of our own experience. Uh, so that there are different levels of seeing impermanence. And what part does the breath play? Uh, the breath itself can be studied to see impermanence. And one uh, way of practicing, before you start looking at all the different uh, bodily conditions and mental states, uh, it's often uh, a good idea, which you're welcome to do, uh, to just take a look at your breathing. And notice that uh, each inhalation uh, appears, operates, and then is gone. And then there's a pause, and an exhalation appears, operates, and it's gone. Uh, and it keeps going like that. And you can begin to see the law of impermanence, since it is, if it's everywhere, you could see it on your own breathing. When you do that, sometimes people think that shamatha, or concentration practice, is breath, and vipassana is everything else. No. Vipassana can be on the breath. In fact, in one breath, you can move from it being a concentration practice to it being a Vipassana practice. If your emphasis is on the sticking to it, sticking to the breathing, that's what we did the first three days. We're still doing it, but I mean, we emphasized it, we featured it. We weren't uh, putting much or any suggestions out about notice that the breath is changing all the time. What we were emphasizing was, can you stay with this in-breath for its life cycle, for the duration that it exists? And then can you stay with this out-breath? And then, you know, I think we're all getting a little better at that. In a breath, if you now, now you're better able to stay with the breath, you've had practice, but if now you also can see discernment or panya, you begin to see that uh, the breath changes. The breath appears and disappears. No in-breath lasts forever. Another way in which you get it is you keep seeing how no two breaths are the same. The breath is subtle and it's coarse and it's fine and it's pleasant and it's unpleasant. And some of that, uh, f we feel that and so we learn, we learn it that way. Okay, so what we're learning uh, is about ourselves. Now, I'd like to end up with an idea just putting it on your mind and then we'll uh, take it up uh, next time. The 13th contemplation is actually extraordinarily rich. It looks simple enough. It says, um, breathing in, the yogi sees uh, or focuses on the impermanent nature of all formations, breathing out, the same. But in the Buddha's teaching, sometimes uh, the, when the Buddha uses anicca or impermanence, the context will uh, make it very clear that he means just impermanence, period. But very often, when he's using impermanence in a certain way without that, those kind of uh, guidelines, 
it is impermanence is is stands for not only impermanence but also dukkha and not self anatta uh, the reason for that uh, being is that they really are all the same thing that is if you can as you that's why impermanence is such a simple it's not easy for us to begin to see it so much and with such depth but if you can really begin to see that everything that arises changes you'll see that uh, as Michael pointed out so much suffering comes about because we don't live as if that's so so we're we're living with a lot of attachment because as if the world isn't arising and passing away from moment to moment and it's very costly Emotionally, a lot of unnecessary suffering comes from that. But the other thing is that change itself is suffering. There's a way of looking at it so that when a disease comes, it means there's been some change, a rearrangement of, of uh, let's call it elements for the moment. Or an earthquake happens, you know, it strikes somewhere, and, you know, from a human point of view, killer earthquake, earthquake strikes, attacks Japan or California. We personify it. But what's happening from a, another point of view is just the earth is, the, the causes and conditions are changing, rearranging themselves. And you happen to be unfortunate enough to be living there when that's happening. Uh, and often what suffering is, is change. Because change is unrelenting. And it doesn't care what anyone, it, it doesn't need anyone's approval or opinion. It just rolls on and on and on. Constant change, 24 hours a day. There's some good things that come out of it too. But particularly if we don't understand that, it's a bumpy ride. So if you see impermanence, you be seeing the soil out of which so much suffering comes. And then the third one, which I know is the hardest one for all of us, is not self. You get the most furrowed brows from that one. And, right? Yeah. And people saying, Look, I can take the first two, but uh, do we really need that third one? And if, and if I don't believe in it, can I still be a Buddhist? <laughs> first of all, uh, it doesn't matter if you believe in it or you don't believe in it, because that's not the point. Uh, if It can be. people. I do know people who say, um, Buddhists believe that everything uh, is impermanent, uh, unsatisfactory. Here, unsatisfactory means ultimately unsatisfactory. It's not saying there's no joy in the world, but from an ultimate point of view, things are always a little bit, hmm, a little bit off. And they're not self. Buddhists believe that. Okay. And I believe that I'm a Buddhist. And, wow, I don't know how many millions of brothers and sisters I have now. I'm, I have this huge sangha and I feel secure and safe because I believe what the Buddha said and he wouldn't lie. And that's a nice belief. But that uh, doesn't have much transformative power. So it, uh, you can be an atheist. You can think that this uh, Buddhist, Buddhism is nonsense. And there was one such case uh, in Cambridge. Uh, if you're willing to really look, it's not a matter of opinion. Uh, you're going to begin to see. Uh, you see, it's not that uh, the suffering grows out of the impermanence. It is it. And it's not that not-self is caused by impermanence, it's another expression of it. If you look in the mind and you uh, look in a, in, a, in a way that has no prejudice, no investment, and that's the kind of uh, capacity we're developing to observe, it's very much akin to a, a naturalist or a scientist way of observing, only we're observing ourselves. Um, you can see that no mi the mind states are just follow each other one after another. They're contradictory, they're inconsistent. We keep changing, they keep changing. Who is it that's even we? Uh, as you look at it and get to see the change, uh, there's a kind of a term that's used a lot now, deconstruction. It deconstructs. It starts to fall apart or to reveal itself as it's there. It's not saying it's a hallucination, but it's not, uh, it doesn't have the solidity that we imputed to it. We gave it a certain mm, solid, intrinsic nature that it doesn't really have. So whether you agree with it or don't agree with it is not really too interesting. What's important is, are you willing to look and learn? If you are, great, then that's the practice. So 13 
is very rich because in beginning to see the impermanent nature of all those other things that we just even just hinted at a little bit, not only are you seeing the, the impermanent nature of it, but you're also seeing that they're not self. You, learn, you can learn that too. And that's, so the, the impermanence is a very uh, a wonderful uh, door into all that the Buddha is talking about. I hope we can make this a little bit more clear uh, as things uh, go on. Let me uh, finish with just a, a quick one. This whole uh, teaching of not avoiding things, but really opening and accepting them, uh, that we have a hard time doing. This is from, uh, it's a review of a book called Ambivalent Zen by Lawrence Shainberg. And uh, it's about, uh, Lawrence Shainberg is talking about his reminiscences, some of which are uh, with uh, in the Zen, Zen uh, tradition. And the reviewer says, um, but when the perpetually confused Shainberg can't decide what to do about his girlfriend, the teacher, this is this very, uh, he comes across quite beautifully, uh, this Zen teacher, uh, when Shainberg can't decide what to do about his girlfriend, the teacher finds virtue even in that. In other words, no matter what Shainberg's problem is, uh, the, the, in true Dharma way, he just says, oh, wonderful, you know, now, okay, okay. So now this Japanese teacher says, can't decide. Ah, great decision, Larry-san. My teacher, he say, if you confused, do confused. Do not be confused by confusion. Understand? Be totally confused, <laughs> Larry-san. Then I guarantee no problem at all. Try it out the next time you're confused. <laughs> Don't be confused by it. It's just a mind state. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Do some walking and some interviews. One. Okay. Just a moment of silence, please. This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 13, 1994. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.